Welcome to This Is Not About Your Body, a body neutrality podcast where we talk about all the real shit body image issues are actually about because they're never just about the way you look. I'm your host, Jesse Neeland, and today I have with me Shirin Eskandani, who is a certified life coach, speaker, writer, and life alchemist, who describes her business, Wholehearted Coaching, as a place where hustle meets heart. Like me, Sharin believes learning to trust yourself will change the whole world, and she helps her clients tune into their intuition, tune out everyone else's expectations, and reach their goals with resilience and grace. Uh, Sharin is the creator of the Wholehearted Coaching Podcast and the Wholehearted Coaching uh, Certification, and she has a really wonderful gift for weaving the best parts of wellness and growth and healing and spirituality and liberation work Altogether, while leaving behind the toxicity, the dogma, and uh, the bypassing, frankly, that's often seen in those spaces. So I'm really excited to have her on here today to talk about decolonizing wellness, worthiness, and personal development. So welcome, Sharon. Oh, my goodness. First, I'm so excited to be here. So excited to be in conversation with you. And thank you for that beautiful, beautiful introduction. You're welcome. I really enjoyed writing it. I was like, oh, this is so cool. Um, okay. So I'm going to have you start with the basics and just tell everyone a little bit about yourself, your work, and maybe how you came to do what you do. So I am a life coach. I'm also a life coach trainer with my certification. However, I think like with most coaches, this isn't where I ever thought I would be. Um, so I am originally from Iran. It's a big part of who I am, um, being Iranian very proud of that. Also, uh, being an immigrant, uh, that's a big part of my story. My family immigrated to Canada when I was quite young. Um, and we were kind of leaving, uh, a very difficult situation at the time. Iran was going through a, a lot of upheaval. Um, and so that's also part of my story in that, you know, our immigration wasn't one that was, um, really wanted, but one that we needed mm. to make, um, and so we moved to Canada and we moved to uh, Vancouver, which is this beautiful city. If anyone's ever been there, it's stunning. However, especially when I was growing up there, it was a very white city, very, very white, pretty conservative. Um, and that's also a big part of what kind of has informed me feeling very kind of um, left out and not feeling like I belong. And also adding on top of that, just that whole um, immigrant experience. And, you know, there was also a lot of um, trauma there that we experienced kind of leaving the country and what we had experienced yeah. there um, and not being able to process that properly. And so I think from a very young age, um, this idea of belonging and worthiness was constantly at the forefront of my mind um, because I didn't feel like I belonged ever which kind of makes you feel like you're not worthy or valuable. And so I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk more about this and get into this, but for me, it's like, when you don't feel like you are worthy, you kind of try to make up for it in all these different ways. Right. Um, and so for me, that was, um, being a perfectionist overachiever and a people pleaser, which I think a lot of folks who are listening, and I know you're nodding your yeah. head, Jesse too, right. Those are, <laughs> those are ones we turn to, um, and so, and, and I think, you know, I, I call these like coping mechanisms, but for a long time, I just thought they were who I was because I think also it's, it's very insidious because they, while they are ultimately, um, unhealthy ways of being, they're applauded in our society and they also get us really far. So I learned from a very young age when I did things really well and I went above and beyond and I made, that's how I made other people happy. That's yeah. how I felt like I belonged. And that's how I felt like I was seen. Um, and so for me, a lot of just navigating the world was through that lens. And so before um, I ever found coaching, the very first thing I found that I loved was singing. So um, mm. I don't know if you know this, Jesse, but for 10 plus years, I was a professional opera singer. And it's actually the reason why I moved to New York. When I was a little girl, I discovered singing and it was like finding home. It was like finding, um, myself again. And when mm. I was on stage, it's where I felt the most myself and free. Um, it was like a total source of joy for me. And so I kind of threw myself into this, into this love. And, um, I would tell anyone who would listen that like, I was going to grow up and become an opera singer. 
And which is like a really weird dream for like a six-year-old, but I think I'd seen an opera and I loved it. So I was like, this is what I'm going to do. So, um, and my family was super supportive of that. However, right. I was pursuing the stream with like perfectionism, people pleasing and overachieving as my North star. Um, and so I, I got really far, you know, in, in the, in Vancouver, I was kind of a big fish in a little pond. There was lots of great singers, but I was quite good at what I did and also right. Perfectionist, all those other things. So I was getting a lot of, um, attention, uh, that sense of worth and value. And so I did my undergrad there and I was like, okay, I'm now going to do my master's. And I got accepted into a really great school in New York. And I thought to myself, okay, well, all I have to do is continue doing more of the same, right? Just continue being the best and you'll be fine. And so I moved to New York and it was like the greatest wake up call of all time because I realized, um, can I swear on this podcast? Yes, please swear. Okay. I realized that I was not shit. Like <laughs> I moved to New York and I realized, oh my gosh, everyone here is amazing at what they do. They're passionate about it. They're hardworking, right? So everything that I kind of framed my identity around, the foundation was like crumbling. Mm. And, you know, I didn't have the bandwidth. I didn't have the the knowledge of like going within, like maybe you should just like go inward, see what's yeah, going on. Yeah. Instead, I just doubled down on what I knew. So I, right. Just, I think what a lot of us first do. So I just doubled down on the hardworking and the perfectionism and the people pleasing. Um, and that got me far too. So once I graduated from my master's program, I was one of a few students who was working full-time as a singer, which was incredible. Yeah. Wow. And it really, yeah, really incredible. And I was really living my dream. So I was singing all over the world, um, Italy, France. I was singing at like Carnegie hall, singing in places I always dreamed of. And while my life looked like a total dream from the outside, right. She's living in New York. She's singing. Look at that. Wow. I was miserable. I was totally miserable. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't because of what I was doing. It was how I was doing yeah. it. Of course, I didn't realize it then. Um, but my, how was all about just being better, doing better when I, you know, all I could see was my flaws. All I could focus on was the jobs. I wasn't getting the things I wasn't doing well, constantly pushing myself. Um, and so that led me to a point where I was pretty burnt out. I didn't know that I was burnt out. But I really started questioning, like, is this what I want to do? And and that was really terrifying because um, singing to me was like my love, right? It was, but the thing that was bringing me so much joy was now bringing me so much pain and difficulty. And of course it was at this very kind of rock bottom moment where I got the call I had been literally dreaming of since I was a little girl. Um, My agent called me and was like, Sharin, the Metropolitan Opera wants you to sing at, uh, the Metropolitan Opera wants you to sing in Carmen. And for folks who don't know, the Metropolitan Opera is like the Olympics of <laughs> classical music. It's like everyone would love an opportunity to yeah. sing there. And, you know, this, this, I had been dreaming of this since I was a little girl. And I had always imagined that if I ever got this phone call, that if this ever happened, I would be like jumping for joy. I'd be mm-hmm. so happy. Um, I would finally realize I'm good enough finally realize I made it. I'm worthy. Yeah. And I remember hanging up the phone, Jesse, and realizing that I felt none of those feelings. And instead of feeling worthy or fulfilled or happy, um, I just thought to myself, like, you're not good enough for this. Yeah. And that was a huge wake up call because, you know, um, I realized in that moment that nothing outside of me was ever going to make me feel worthy. Yeah. That that was something I had to work on and I had to do, you know, because this was such a perfect dream come true. You know, sometimes our dreams come true and we think, oh, well, you know, this, I'm probably not happy because I'm not making the income that I wanted to make, or I'm probably not happy because my partner is like, I don't know, three inches shorter than I wanted. I don't know, whatever it is. Right. But this was so perfect and it, it wasn't making me feel worthy or fulfilled um, or enough. So I was like, okay, girl, you have to work on what's going on inside. Okay. So um, I had a year and a half to prepare to sing at the Met and I worked on my oh, voice, wow. of course, but I really worked on what was going on internally. 
um, mindfulness and mindset. Uh, I'd gone to therapy. I love therapy. I think everyone should have access to therapy. Um, but I also started working with a coach and that shifted a lot for me. Um, mm. and to this day, I say that my greatest achievement in life isn't singing at the Met, but it's singing at the Met and enjoying every part of that process, uh-huh. feeling worthy. Every time I took a bow at the end of the night, feeling like yeah. I belong there. Even if I'd made a mistake, even if things weren't like optimal or ideal, I had developed over that year and a half, this, this inner toolkit yeah. that I could call upon that could allow me to just stand in my worth and stand in my value. Um, so that was a really eye-opening experience. And I think also, um, uh, finding coaching, it allowed me to find something else that I loved. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, I also started to realize, Hey, I actually like, I love singing, but I think I want to try some other things. So I looked into a certification, became certified and, uh, here I am now coaching. Um, and so that's kind of like a short version of a long story, but a long version of that story as well. Yeah, but that yeah. kind of sums up how I got here, what brought me here, um, and what was the impetus to, to oh. do this work. Man, thank you for sharing all that. I knew some of that just from having read your content and, you know, browsing your website in preparation for this, but, um, yeah, I'm not sure I fully understood like the timeline of the thing. And <laughs> it's such, it's one of those like moments that, that shine a light on how, uh, the strategy is the problem, not you, that you really can't get unless, you know, cause if it's like, you're failing inside of a failing strategy. You can always blame yourself. If you're succeeding inside of a failing strategy, you suddenly are like, ah, oh, shit, it's the strategy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and coming from the fitness industry, which is where I know your partner from, I feel like I saw so many of my friends, my trainer friends, they would do like shows, you know, physique shows, competitions, that kind of thing. And I could just see them go, I'm finally going to feel how I want to feel about myself because I'm finally going to get in the the best, most intense, you know, shape of my life. I'm going to put on all this muscle and then diet down and I'm going to be spray tanned and I'm going to be hot. And, and even if they win, none of them felt good about themselves on the yeah. other side. And it was often that same moment, like well, shit, then the strategy must not work because I crushed it at this. <laughs> yeah. And I would see that and be like, guys, it's not working. Or or similarly, I think in my clientele, one of the reasons I moved into body image coaching was seeing my clients succeed as it were, and still feel bad about themselves and just being like, well, then what's it about? Yeah. Because it's not about this. Well, and hope, and you, and I think too, you get to that maybe a couple times. Cause like you have to like, cause then you're like, oh, well maybe if I lose five more pounds or 10 more yeah, pounds, maybe the goal wasn't big enough. Yes. You know? And I feel like you have to do it a couple of times. I yeah. mean, I, I wish that we didn't, but that's <laughs> usually the case with, with most of us is like, you do it a couple times and you realize you hopefully realize, oh, wait a second it's it, the goal isn't it's the strategy that I'm using. Yeah. It's the, how that I'm, I'm, I'm embarking on. And also the, why, like, yeah. why do I want this thing? Um, and if I'm being really honest with myself, sometimes a lot of my why back in the day was like to prove I was worthy. Yeah. Right? Totally. And that why is not a very fulfilling why. So totally. yes. It's also how I ended up getting super injured because I loved lifting weights. I loved my job. I loved training and uh just all of it and I ended up getting hurt not because strength training is dangerous but because I was training myself from a place of trying to prove something yeah and that does not set you up for good decision making <laughs> good absolutely, not. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not um okay so this is absolutely one of the things I want to talk to you about Sort of understanding, I think your your story highlights it really beautifully that it's like an inside job, but we're often taught to go about it through external means. Um, but I'd love to hear you give us a definition of worthy because I think it's one of those words, I mean, I use it too, but it's very vague, very broad, can kind of mean anything. It's bounced around all the time, like feeling worthy, um, worthiness, you know, in the coaching world especially. So how do you define or understand what it means to feel worthy or what worthiness is. 
Oh my gosh, this is such a great question. And one in which I hope we have a collaborative discussion around, but you know, okay. So just even the word worth, like how much is something worth? Like even just an object, like you're going to buy a couch or a phone. Yeah. Um, we're talking about this idea of value, right? Like what is the value of this? And I think when it comes to worthiness, it's this inherent belief that I am of value. And I think what makes it difficult as humans is that I am unconditionally valuable, right? So my value is not tied to what I do, how I look like, how I serve others, that just as I am, I am a value. And I think we see this a lot, um, in like really little kids, right? Kids. I think it's like before they understand words and what's happening, because when you watch kids, there is an inherent, um, like they're inherently, they just know, like I am here, I exist in this world and like, here I am. And yeah. there's that wonderful YouTube video that I'm sure many folks have seen of that little girl. She's like standing on um, the bathroom counter yeah. and she's just like saying all these beautiful affirmations and she really feels it. And I think when we think of worth, it is to know that we are inherently valuable and there's no conditions tied to that, that just as we are, whether we are working really hard or sitting on our couch, not able to get up from that couch, that we are of value. Um, and I think that's really hard, right? Like, yeah. I think we can do that. I'm valuable when I'm serving others, when I'm doing things, sure. when I'm in action. However, um, it's a much more difficult thing when, you know, when, when I am not able to, when I can't. Yeah. Um, and so that's how I would start off our discussion around worthiness. It's interesting to think about that way because it makes me feel like the English language is uh, making this more complicated than it needs to be because we don't have separate language for like feeling existentially worthy versus feeling or Mm -hmm. existentially of value, I should say, versus feeling of value like to our communities or, you know, that kind of thing because they are completely different, Mm -hmm. but they're the same word and they're hard to parse apart. Yes. A hundred percent. I mean, the English language lets us down in so many different ways, (laughs) but I think for sure, this is one of them. And I think what makes us really hard too, is that we, you know, I know part of our conversation is going to teeter into this idea of decolonizing. Um, we don't have to complicate it, but I think part of what makes it really hard is we live in a society that is rooted in white supremacy and capitalism and misogyny. And those systems tell us that actually you aren't worthy. And so that's what makes it really tricky. There are some cultures and there are some traditions and ways of thinking in which this is a very easy concept to understand, right? That like, yeah, I am worthy regardless of what I'm doing, but our culture has ingrained from us from a very young age that to be of value and to be of worth in our society, you have to do X, Y, and Z, and this is how you have to look and be and operate. So I think that's what makes it also really, really difficult. Yeah. It's been ingrained in us. So I'm wondering what you would say to someone who is like, I know I am of value to people, to my community, at my job, wherever, like they feel a sense of value that maybe even let's say just for the sake of this example is really healthy and positive and and like meaningful they feel like they're showing up in a way that that just they love and yet the existential piece is still missing they feel like un unvaluable to the universe or i don't even know how to put it exactly but like how do you help them conceptualize it differently or how how do you even know how do you measure that You'll never find out. Did the universe say yes or no? (laughs) So, okay. I, I, what's really interesting is I literally just had a coaching session with someone with a client that I think kind of addresses this. Um, so in Buddhism, there is this concept that I love that when I was first introduced to, I was like, holy crap, um, called the hungry ghost. Are you familiar with that, Jesse? No, but I just read Gabor Mate's book in the realm of hungry ghosts on addiction. So I'm guessing that's where it's from. And I didn't even know that when I read it. (laughs) Yes. So the idea of hungry ghosts, and I'm going to totally butcher it. And I'm sure someone who's listening, who knows far more about Buddhism, um, can, can, you know, fill in some of the gaps. However, in a very general sense, the idea of the hungry ghost is that, you know, there are parts of us, um, that really are inherent to who we are. Right. So for me, 
um, whether that is um, giving and being of service. That's actually really inherent to who I am. And when I'm really grounded and really aligned, um, I can do that in a way that is really nourishing to me and the yeah. people around me, right? However, when I'm in the realm of the hungry ghost, the hungry ghosts are insatiable. So it's something that you need. Ooh, I love it's something that, that you need, right? Um, but when you're in that place where you're not grounded, it's like, no matter how much I give or how much I do, it's never going to be enough, right? It just kind of, it's just, flows oh. through the ghost. Yeah. Makes so much sense. He would use this as the title for a book on addiction. <laughs> yeah. Yes. God, yes. That's so moving and upsetting. Yes. But I think what's really important about the hungry ghosts and, you know, is that a lot of the things that we, it, they're things that we actually need. So one of my hungry yeah. ghosts is uh, around worthiness, but also like feeling loved. I, um, I thrive on feeling really loved. And when I'm really grounded, I can ask for that love and I can give and receive that love and in, in a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. When I am not grounded, the way that I seek for that love, the way that I ask for that love, the way that I show my love is, is suffocating. <laughs> it's, it's, and, sure. and there's never yes, enough. And, there's and never, never uh... enough. And I think that's for me, but I think yeah. worth is something that is inherent to all of us. Mm. Feeling worthy is something that I think is necessary. Just like with the hungry ghost, I always say it's like in like a flower, think of your, like, um, what would be in your instruction manual for your flower? Like I need light. I need this. All of us need worth. All of us mm -hmm. need to be about feel, feel valued. Um, and so, yes, when we're grounded and when we're aligned, we can find that value in this beautiful ways and wonderful ways, whether it's community or by yourself, but when we're not, yeah, that's when you fall into the perfectionism and the people pleasing mm -hmm. and the hardworking, or for some of it, it's actually for us, it's like, actually we go the opposite way. We procrastinate. We don't do anything. We get really defensive. Right. Yeah. And so that's, yeah, that's, I would look at that idea. But I, I, when I learned about hungry ghosts, I was like, oh man. And it's such a beautiful image right? This ghost yeah. that just Ugh. never gets enough. That is an amazing way of thinking about it. And I think a lot of people listening will definitely resonate with the feeling of like, there is a healthy exchange in your confidence, your self-worth, your sense of your own value at times where you do something good, you feel good about it. It, it like has a completeness to it. And then there is this hungry ghost sense that nothing would ever be enough it's bottomless. And that is the part that wounds us. Um, something that I'm really passionate about is <laughs> the fact that worthiness is a relative word, much like yeah. fitness. Mm -hmm. And we don't think of either as relative words, but you know, if you say you're fit, like, what are you fit to do? It's a, it, you need context in order to even define what fit means. Worthy is the same. You can't be just worth. You can't be worthy without there being some kind of context for like worthy of what. You can't be enough without asking like enough for whom. You know, like there's all yes. these contexts, and I think it gets uh, the hungry ghost version of it erases all context, and it's more like just that sort of gaping void of what you're saying, just worth just feeling yourself as sort of fundamentally good. Yes. Yes. That's really interesting. So one thing that I feel like the more I've learned about attachment and that kind of thing, attachment and trauma, um, <laughs> I feel like there was a while where I just was like, I guess we're all screwed. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't, I'm like, this is all really interesting science. And also like, oh my God, if you didn't have someone reflecting to you, when you were little, that they were glad you existed and they treated you like a burden and they criticized you and they made you feel like who you were was a problem. What the hell do you do? And I know there's so many strategies, you know, that I've implemented that other people I've seen in my work implement, but essentially our first understanding of whether or not we are good or enough or deserving or whatever is having it reflected to us. And it is really hard to undo that later if you didn't get it when your brain was developing. So what do you say or what do you see as the difference maybe in like a client who's coming from that kind of background versus someone who maybe just like developed all of the sense of unworth from any number of, you know, kind of capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchal ideas, um, oh, but, but yeah. has something of like a secure sense of themselves in the world. Yeah. Well, first of all, 
if you meet that second person, Jesse, who hasn't done some work on themselves, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> I'm not good boy. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm hoping this new new generation of parenting, um, you know, results in adults who are that yeah. second. But I think our generation most certainly was just trying their best. And, you know, there was a lot um said and unsaid that I think informs how a lot of us conceptualized who we are, right. As, as, as young kids, which kind of, we then of course take into adolescence and adulthood. I mean, yes. And so the way that I always talk about this with my clients is I call it the worthiness wound. And I really love the word wound because one that implies it's in, inflicted upon you, right. That it isn't mm-hmm. something that right. we should feel ashamed of or be judgmental towards ourselves. Like, Oh, why do yeah. I still struggle? White, but, but this is something that happened to me. Um, and, and I, you know, you don't have to have like anger, animosity of like why it's there, but just understanding like, this is, this is a wound. And so I think that's the one, one part of it that that's really helpful is like, this is something that happened to me. It's yeah. not inherent to who I am. And the second part, when we think of wound is, well, how would you tend to a wound? Mm-hmm. Right. Would you like, I don't know, like try get to get mad at it. it. <laughs> right. Uh, no. When we think of a wound, we would like, you know, treat it with care. Yeah. We would, uh, tend to it. We would love it. We would like bandage it up, put some ointment yeah. on, like we would be really loving toward it. Um, so this concept of a wound, I think really is a great entry point into this conversation around worthiness. Yeah. So we can like, let go of some of that shame and judgment we have, like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm right. 40, 50, 30 years old. And I still, I still don't think I'm worthy. Yeah. That's okay. Right. This yeah. is, there's a lot that contributed to this. And a, most of that, I would almost say all of it was out of your hands. Yeah. Um, and then we navigate through the world and we just have these ways of being, and it just gets like the wound gets, um, deeper and deeper and deeper instead of actually being tended to. Right. So speaking of Gabor Mate, one of the things, or Gabor, I think you said, one of the things in his most recent book, um, The Myth of Normal, that I loved was this idea of two of our most primal needs as humans are attachment and authenticity. And in childhood, I mean, the ideal scenario is those two things are always the same thing. You get to be fully authentic and you get all of your attachment needs met. Um, But as you're saying, that's, I don't know that that's ever happened for anyone for a variety of reasons, including like your parents are just tired, you know, like even if nothing is wrong, you're still going to feel at times like a burden, like you're, you know, causing uh, them to feel disappointed or upset or what, like it's hard. So what we do, and he points this out as like, if you believed in that moment in an undeveloped brain, you were like, I guess I just live in a world where I can't get my attachment needs met, which I need to survive. Why on earth would you continue developing? You basically wouldn't. That's it for you. Life is over. Your alternative is to blame yourself and start trying to trade that authenticity for whatever it is you think will get you your attachment needs met. Because of the two, like when you're a baby, when you're a kid, attachment is the the primary keep keeping you alive. You need that and you need that more than you need to feel free or authentic or seen. So like you make the trades and then a lot of times you keep making the trades. And as you said, society gives you a whole bunch more trades to make and Mm -hmm. you keep trying to make those in the hopes that you'll finally get this sense that you changed yourself enough to get this need deeply met. And even if you did, which you probably won't, but like, even if you did, you're still, you still have this gaping unmet wound for authenticity and actually feeling accepted and seen. So again, strategy does not work, but it's an understandable one. And it kept you alive. I think that's, you know, a lot of the times I really do think of that as kids, we are the main character in the story. We're the only thing that we can like make sense of. And so Right. When things don't make sense, when we're not getting that love or we're not getting the, the we think the problem must be me. It can't be my yeah. caretakers. It can't be the people around me. And so we carry so much and we don't understand that when we're quite young. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's us trying to make sense of something that is senseless, that does not yeah. make sense. Right. And so I got to get that book. I got to read it. That's, oh, it's so yeah. good. I'm obsessed. <laughs> 
Um, but I think the cool thing about what you've been saying here is that if we think about these two needs being in conflict, worthiness is part of the authenticity that we trade. Like we are all born with a sense of worthiness and it's one of the trades we make in order to go the other direction. We say, okay, I guess I'm not worthy and I'm going to start working on that. Like we have immediately left the realm of what we were born with understanding that we deserve care and attention and love and belonging and all the things in order to solve a problem. Yes. I, I totally agree. And I actually, as you're saying that too, I think it brings up as well, like, so, uh, I think if you are, if you are a woman identify as a woman, if you were raised as a woman, I think also there's this conversation too, around, uh, if this person thinks they're worthy, they're going to get a big head or they're going to be self-centered. Oh God, or yeah. So that's like a whole other discussion we can have too, right? Oh, that man, it's like, that, yeah, yeah. If, if I do feel worthy, that's going to mean that I'm like, Cause we see, and, and I wouldn't call this in white men. I don't think it's worth, I think it's privilege, uh -huh. but we've kind of messed those two things up, but we see this so often with, with white men, with what we call, oh, they think they're worthy. And so look, they just do whatever they want. Yeah. They just, and unfortunately it's something we often applaud in men, but if a woman is doing that, we wouldn't applaud that. But also I think there's this, we have, um, a misunderstanding around what worthiness means and how, mm -hmm. what, it, what manifests from that too. So I think that's also, as you were saying that I was like, oh my gosh, I actually have never thought of this. I'm having this insight in real it. time as we're talking, but I think there is a fear too, for us as women, that if I actually feel incredibly worthy, holy crap, what would that mean? One, what would that mean? And that would I become selfish and self-centered, but holy crap, what would that mean? I think I'd maybe burn my life down and yes. change everything, which yes. is also terrifying too. Oh God, that's so true. It's really dangerous when you've kind of built it all on an understanding that not only is there a problem about you, you need to solve, therefore you can't have worth, but also if you did, you would set yourself up for like, I don't know, people judging you, hating you, rejecting you, abandoning you, like that you would lose one of the best qualities about you, which is your perfectionism and people pleasing and whatever the thing is. And yeah, I think there is so much that we avoid knowing about ourselves in order to do that, that it starts to pose a real existential threat to imagine changing it. Yeah, exactly. Because in the other, you know, belonging is also such a big part of just like being human. And so if I actually know my worth, that may mean that I can't belong to certain groups mm -hmm. that I have grown up with, that I have known. Um, yeah. And that I would I stop tolerating certain relationships or things like that. Which is really scary, which is yeah. really, really scary. And I think for both you and I, who've made huge shifts in our lives, I do think part of that. And as I'm reflecting on it is a part of just understanding your own worth and value and being like, actually, yeah. That's okay. And coming to that conclusion takes time and it takes patience. Um, yeah. but it does have to do with your worth, but it's terrifying, terrifying, terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. And okay. So the thing you pointed out before, so, so important, really want to talk about that is the way that we associate worthiness with privilege. Mm. More or less, I think like a quick summary of systems of oppression would be, we learn that social status and capital and privilege indicate something true about that person's worth. Therefore, if you're at the top, you obviously, like that tells us you have more worthiness. And if you're at the bottom, you have less. So it, it creates a system in which everyone is clawing their way upward to get to the top, even though they somewhere, I think most people are aware, uh, there couldn't be a top. They couldn't get this if it weren't hurting people at the bottom. Mm. But because it's all individualistic and it's like each person, each person for themselves, basically, like uh, you have to follow these rules, conform to these standards, like claw your way to the top of any hierarchy, whether that means losing weight or, you know, uh, whatever it is, you're trying to earn more status and privilege in the hopes that that makes you feel worthy and that other people see you as worthy. Tell me why this is wrong and problematic <laughs> and harmful. I mean, I think you explained why it's harmful. <laughs> okay. I think you explained, no, but, but I think, I mean, the other part of this is that we have to see that 
they benefit. So they meaning, um, the systems that be yeah. the systems that are in power now, they benefit from us thinking we're not worthy. They benefit from us thinking we're not enough. And I know you've probably had tons of discussions around this with, with body image about how industries mm-hmm. benefit the fitness industry, the diet industry, the, all the industries that are associated with it, with us, if we, they benefit us off not thinking we are worthy. And so they don't want us to think we are right. Because all of those systems would crumble and fall because we, we wouldn't buy into it anymore. Right. And so, um, it's harmful in so many ways. And as you said, it's, we've all experienced this. You get the body, you get the partner, you get the job, you do the things to get higher on that, that hierarchical, whatever thing they've created. And you realize you are no more fulfilled. You are no more happy, um, Mm. than you were before. Right. And so it just, but, but then they convince us, Oh no, 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 no. But like, if you just get up to this rung yeah. of the ladder, it, I promise you is going to be better. Yeah. And it's, it's not, so it's, it's constant and they, they benefit off of us thinking that this is the solution, the strategy Absolutely. they gave us. Yeah. It frames worth as something that is very transactional. Mm-hmm. Like if you follow my rules for you, then you'll have it. I'll give it to you then. Of course yes. they don't, you never get it, but like, if you keep moving the goalpost, it can you can go with this plan for a really long time. And I think that really speaks to the the difference between the two types of value. Like one may be, I don't know if it's earnable exactly, but it's certainly based on stuff happening, right? Like the more you show up in a space that feels meaningful of service, you know, uh, connected to your communities or values, then yeah, you're going to definitely feel more of value in that space. But it doesn't even remotely apply to the other one, which is this innate sense that you fundamentally are deserving of good things. <laughs> like yeah. it's just never going to touch that one. And that's that's the hungry ghost one. Yes. And so I have this like meditation that that I do when I'm I'm doing this work around worthiness. And the meditation came to me. Um we had gone to like a museum and it was like one of like the old school, like the Met or something. And it just kind of really hit me that I'm like, oh, like all these things are beautiful. They're valuable. They're of worth, but they were also curated by certain folks, right? Mm -hmm. This museum, all these things that they're telling me are valuable and of worth yeah, have been curated by a bunch of, let's be honest, like old white men. Right. And it, right. Because I am from uh, a culture in which, you know, there's usually like a section in the museum with, with my culture stuff, but, but I am made to feel like these things like a Monet or a Picasso is far more valuable than the indigenous work of some person I've never heard of. And so that idea was like, holy crap, wait a second. I am being told what is worthy. Yeah. But what if I was on display in that museum? Right. And, 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 and I, so I have this meditation where I'm like, you are on display and everyone comes in and just like, looks at you and is like, wow, this is so beautiful and so amazing because we do not see ourselves in so many places. We do not see ourselves. And yeah, that meditation for me was like, I I first started it with myself and I was like, I feel like this is going to be helpful for other folks too. That metaphor, that analogy, and that reminder that we are being told what is valuable and what is worthy. It's curated for us in our society. And what, what if we were, what if we were the exhibition, if it was us, could you hold space for that? Could you be okay with that? Yeah. Yeah. Also, I feel like art is such an interesting one because, you know, you can have like a painting that looks like it could have been done by a kindergartner going for millions of dollars and then something that someone, you know, like took thousands and thousands of hours and technique to create just going for like 150 on Etsy. So like it is, it does highlight, I think, the arbitrary nature of what's being assigned value. Totally arbitrary nature and the rules that say that this is a value and that like, who is making these rules? And do we actually trust these people? Do we want to trust these people? Oh my gosh. I went to a modern museum with my parents recently, like a super modern. And all of us, my, my parents were just looking at each other and we were like, <laughs> we got to go. We don't even know. What this, this is, this is wild. This is wild. Yeah. 
So uh, one thing that for me was really powerful, I grew up without religion of any kind. My parents were atheists. I was very like um, <laughs> righteous and indignant about the fact that like I had the right answers and anyone with religion was an idiot who like bought into something, you know, I'm like, sure, I'm miserable and I feel like there's no point to the universe or whatever, but at least I'm right. Like that was my for a long time. Uh, that was my MO. And one of the things that was so impactful for me in my own healing was recognizing that uh, because we're never going to have answers to those kinds of questions, that the only thing that really matters is how does that belief impact you? And I was able to recognize this one sucks for me. Like this one is really deeply wounding me because I felt like everything was random negative chaos for no reason. And what is the point? You know, I was having like a really negative reaction to my own belief system that I only really kept because it made me feel superior intellectually to people who were happy, basically. And in giving that up, I basically gave myself permission to be wrong since we're never going to know. And I feel like there's something in this that applies with worthiness too, that like, you'll never find out how much you're worth. No one can ever actually tell you. I mean, people will try, but like we can recognize those are arbitrary, right? There's no, there's no arbiter of the universe who you finish life and they go, you're worth this many dollars or this many life moonbeams, who cares? Like you'll never find out. So all that really matters is how is this belief impacting you? How's it working out? Yeah. Make up a new one, maybe. <laughs> like, pick yes. at random. See how that one goes. I like this. This this um process of questioning our beliefs is so incredibly important. Of like, the two questions for me is like, um, you know, how does it serve me to believe this belief, and who does it serve if I yeah. believe who's this benefiting. Belief? Who benefits from me? And that second question, uh, sometimes you oh. answer it, you're like, oh, actually, I don't think this is a belief I want to hold on to anymore. Yeah. Um, and a lot of this, you know, a lot of my work is around decolonizing. And I think when you say the word decolonizing, I don't know, I think people think you're like, just like sticking it to the man. And it's like, it's a very complex and difficult and and really we have to understand that, you know, um, colonizing means to take over, uh, a land, a geography, right. But when we take over a land, we're not just taking over that country, those people, whatever we are taking over. We are people, the folks are colonizing minds and beliefs and thoughts and dreams and imaginations oh. and ways of being when there was a, uh, this is from Ed, I read this book called decolonizing wealth. Um, this is a quote from Edgar Villanueva. And he, I, I read that and I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Actually like the land is, is just the tip of the iceberg. And in order to take over a country, right. Yeah. When you, you have to take over people's mindset and their beliefs, which I think is actually the most tragic part of it. And yeah. regardless of where you come from, we all, um, have fallen victim to colonization. And so it serves us so well to really question and think of like, what do I believe and who gave me this belief and how yeah. does it serve me to hold on to this and who benefits from this? Because more often than not, those beliefs that aren't questioned, who's benefiting from it is, you know, the, the, the bigger systems that be. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so the belief part is such a big part of this. And when it comes to body image, such a huge part of it as well. Right. Um, yeah. so many of our beliefs around our bodies, they're not ours. They're not. So just to have it put into the crystal clearest terms for somebody who's listening and going, I think I understand. I think I can see what you mean. I'm not sure how I would quite apply it or whatever, but can you describe who benefits from us feeling like we're not good enough and have to follow these rules that society has given us to be like good, valuable women or good, valuable, like whatever, through body and beauty ideals, through, uh, you know, capitalistic working hard, through like ableist ideas of, you know, productivity, all of these things. 
who is benefiting from us feeling like we have to earn our worth across all these hierarchies and spectrums? I mean, in a very simple way, it's like white men, um, but like, it's it's really capitalism and white supremacy, right? The, they're, they are what benefit because if we really sat down with it and we thought, if you really like today, let's say in a magical world, Okay. Actually, I read this book. It was a really old uh, diet culture book. I forget the name of it, but it was like from the 1980s. And so it had a lot of, pro- I forget the name, had problematic moments, but some moments you were like, wow, this is really great yeah. for the 1980s. But one of the questions they asked was, um, let's imagine you exist in a world in which body size does not matter. It does not matter how small or large or, or able-bodied, whatever, like it just does not matter what would your experience be like walking in the world? Hmm. And to imagine that was like a really, um, such a groundbreaking moment for me, uh, right? Because I realized that so much of what I carry actually isn't about me. It's about Mm -hmm. the world I'm living in. It's about um, the beliefs and the structures and the way I'm treated in that world, right? Um, But if if I knew I was gonna be treated wonderfully. And if I knew that like, no one was going to have any thoughts, even if they do or they don't, but I think they do like, I would just exist. Like I would just go out there. I'd wear whatever I wanted to wear. I would do whatever I want to do. Um, and the freedom that comes from that. And I think it's the same with this idea of worthiness. If you knew you were worthy, just as you are, I think we would burn down everything. (laughs) You know, like, I just think we wouldn't buy into anything And, um, that's really scary for, for the powers that be, whether that is whatever, however we want to call it. Right. But really what's benefiting here is, is capitalism, um, misogyny, patriarchy, right. And, and white supremacy, because they, all the values they've instilled in us is like, you're not worthy. You have to work for it. You have to do more. You have to contribute to society, but you can only contribute in these ways. Yeah. It's so limiting and it keeps us small. Yeah. Yeah. So something that I talk about a lot with diet culture is that it keeps us busy. Like it does keep us small. It keeps us disempowered. It keeps us uh, like a a lot of things that really suck. But I'd say like the best way that it controls us is we're too busy to bother fight our own oppression. And we're also too hungry. That's also a thing, yes. but like, you know, it's like the busyness in your head, you're tracking, you're counting, you're, you're thinking, you're worrying. Like you don't have the mental real estate to be like, who's oppressing me? How do yeah. I not have that be going on? Like you are occupied. Yes. Which yes. works on many levels here. But um, yeah, that is absolutely the people benefiting from all these things. It's also interesting because I've been learning a lot lately about um, cult psychology and coercive control. And the way that it works is super fascinating, follows a very formulaic pattern, whether we're talking about like an actual cult or like capitalism or an Mm. abusive relationship or whatever. Um, And one of the big things is that when you are busy in this way, when you are occupied with... uh, a strategy that you've been given to earn the things you need, you basically learn that like your power comes from manipulation, Mm. which is why every cult is based on some kind of personal accountability value. Mm. As is capitalism, rugged individualism, our entire culture is based on this idea that like you are accountable for what happens to you. Therefore, it's your fault if something bad happens to you. And also for women, especially, I think, like, you must do all of these things and follow all of these rules or you will end up deeply unsafe, not even just not getting Mm -hmm. your attachment needs met, but like there is a real threat of violence as in any good coercive control cult or abusive relationship. The threat is there, even if it's not nobody's saying I'm going to beat you up if you don't follow this. Like, we know, we know vaguely that this strategy is our... Uh, it's supposed to be anyway, our protection, our safety, our ability to get our needs met. And it all comes down to we are accountable for what other people do and feel and think. And without that, if you truly did not believe you were accountable, then you would just be mad if someone treated you badly. You'd be like, what the hell? No, thank you. Don't do that. 
Yeah. And instead it's like, okay, well, what did I do to make that happen? Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's so interesting. I've done a little bit of research around cults, um, and how they work and what kind of like coercive tactics they use. Um, and the parallels between that and just our life here in everything Western (laughs) hemisphere in North America and the States is wild. It's wild. And we would never think that we exist with an occult mentality. We're like, no, but I'm thinking for myself. And yes, we are. And also we're thinking for ourselves within this box that they've kind of created for us. Um, I feel like now we can start like talking about like the matrix or something, but like, but it's so, it's, it's, it's so, so true. Um, there's just so much coercion happening. And, and I think you brought up a really good point, that sense of safety. I think that's also a big part of this equation. And, um, so I think that's why this work has to be done really like slowly and gently, yeah. patiently, yeah. um, because we have to, like, it's like, a, it's a level by level of feeling a little safer. I'm going to try this and I yeah. I'm okay. And I'm, it's just, I think move at the speed of what feels safe. Yeah. I, uh, I call it death work with clients because I know for me, like breaking some of the rules, the first time I started breaking certain like body beauty type rules, um, I felt so terrified with no actual thing I could name that was going to happen. I just felt like I would die if I didn't wear a bra and I went out in public, the earth would swallow me up And like life would be over. It just had this very, very terrifying, threatening sense without any story that I could attach to it of what I actually thought might happen. And that's often the way it is when people start challenging the the rules they've been following for earning their worth. It's rarely like, I think if I get a B minus on a test, you know, somebody will abandon me. It's more like, I just feel like the earth will stop spinning if I make a mistake the stakes are so high. That's so true. And then when it actually happens, you're like, Oh, I'm okay. I was able to figure it out. And I think actually, as you said, death work too, I think on the other side of it, when you kind of are like, Oh wait, I don't actually need to do these things. There's so much grief involved with this work as well, which I know comes up often in your work. I'm sure where all of a sudden grief and anger of like, Oh my gosh, I cannot believe that I was doing that for so long. And that Um, so I think leaving space for all of those big feelings, I mean, yeah, yeah, this is deep, deep work. And the anger is so important too, because as you talk about like the colonization of thoughts and dreams and self-concepts and all of these things that are way more impactful on our day-to-day lives than like land, just like (laughs) the loss of like the hopes and dreams you had for a relationship. Ultimately, that's a lot more of the grief work than the breakup, right? Like those things, we don't talk about them, but they impact us so deeply. And the colonization of those things, the way that we're given containers and limitations and rules, et cetera, it, uh, it ends up being like you to name it even means to get angry Yes, because how dare they have, Mm -hmm. right? And to recognize that it is a limitation and it's not just who you are means, I think in a lot of ways, as you said, like we would burn the world down. Like it is to rage. Yeah. And that rage is important and also very, very scary and uncomfortable for people. Holy crap. Yes. Yes. And I think as we're talking about like uh, being a woman, identifying as a woman, I think rage and anger are, are two emotions that we um, haven't been given enough access to, um, comfortability with, cause I think they're absolutely necessary, but when we yeah. tap into it, it feels overwhelming, over consuming. It feels wrong, yeah. but so necessary in this process, uh, in my certification, like we just, the first part of it is just around some decolonizing concepts and slowly mm. doing the work. And I, I always, as a disclaimer, I'm like, a lot's going to come up for you and just leave space for that, yeah. leave room for it, give grace for it. Um, cause once you realize like, holy crap, I've been operating like this for so long and believing yeah. this for so long and doing all of these things to satisfy, not myself, yeah. but this, this thing, this strategy. Um, so just allow all of that to be present and also know it's normal. 
Yes. I also feel like there's a lot of really interesting parallels between the experience of someone who leaves like an abusive, coercive relationship or cult and doing this work because like most of us spend a lot of time preparing to start, right? It's like some part of you intuitively has connected with this for a very long time. By the time you say out loud for the first time, I don't think what's happening is okay here or you admit to someone what's going on, or you express your first bit of doubt or, you know, whatever it might be, or ask for support. So like in that moment, it does kind of feel like you first peek behind the curtain Mm. and then it crashes in. And there is a long process a lot of times of like basically going back over your entire reality looks different in retrospect once you've named these things. It's not, he was a great guy who loved me and I just wasn't good enough. And that's why he did all these things. It's, oh my God, I got love bombed. And that makes sense because of the attachment wound I had that I was drawn into it. And then he controlled me. And now, right, it's like you have to re-narrate all of it. And in this work too, even if it's not like, you know, a one-on-one thing, you're re-narrating the entire experience of you in the world, you in the relationship and attachment with society. Yeah. Yes. You have like the best metaphors, Jesse. You have such great Thank like, you. analogies. <laughs> metaphors. I'm like, yes, yes, that is exactly what it is. But you're so right. That re-narration process. Yeah. To sit with it and to be with it. It's And I feel like, so I wrote down this question. I was like cracking myself up as I wrote it. Cause I was like, there's no way to answer this. Like, what would you tell a listener who doesn't feel worthy? Where do they start? Um, but I do feel like we've kind of like organically found our way a little bit to the understanding that so in this example with like abuse or call like go ahead and stay in that situation and try to feel worthy i dare you like do it no one ever could right that is never going to work to, to maintain them having control over your thoughts and reality you trade you've made the trade worth is the cost you mm-hmm. never get to have it the only way out is to pull behind the curtain and start acknowledging that that was not reality. Yeah. And this is, and I feel like in some ways, just even like that is the first step. People ask me all the time, Oh, how do I feel worthy? I'm like, good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) I, I know. I think you're totally right. I think part of this equation, I think there's many parts to it, but a big part of it that I don't think we say or think of is to think of all of the reasons, um, outside of you that try, try not to make you feel why, like, yeah, outside of the right that, that are making you not feel worthy. And I think that's what you're bringing up is to name. Cause I think there is so much shame and judgment around like, why can't, well, it seems like, and also listen, uh, worthiness is not like something you achieve. And it's not like a video game where you unlock it and that you like (laughs) it waxes and wanes and it's up and it's down. And hopefully we cultivate tools that allow us to kind of be with where we're at and allow us to kind of get to where we hope to be with our, with our worth. Right. So I constantly work on this. Right. Um, but I think one of the great things that you're bringing up is to really ask yourself, well, what are the forces outside of me that have made me not feel worthy? Right. Um, that have convinced me that I'm not worthy and why would they want that? And, and whether you can answer that is it's okay. Another part of the equation too. And I think coming back to that kind of wound part is I always tell my clients to kind of imagine, imagine like whether it's the wound or imagining a part of you. And you can either imagine that as like a person or a thing or something in your body. Um, but how would you talk to a part of you that feels wounded, right? Um, have a conversation with that part of you that thinks you are not worthy because it, it yeah. is, it is a part of you that thinks you are not worthy. And conversely, I believe there's a part of you that thinks you are so fucking worthy. And start Ooh, having right? That's start- an interesting plant planted seed that I bet a lot of people have never heard there, or considered. And I, have a, I have a feeling when I said that something like, probably went off for a lot of people, Uh right? Start connecting to that part. Oh, I love that. And it totally goes back to what we were saying about like, 
you weren't born feeling unworthy. Yes. It got taught out of you, essentially. It got traded out of you. It became the cost of the strategy you, you were, you know, implementing. But it doesn't disappear. It can't no. just become nothing. No. And therefore, we all have it. Yes. And that I even felt that in my body, like there mm. was a there was a ping just to hear that, like, yes, it lives here. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's a lot easier to access, and it's my whole body. And other times right. it's harder, but there's always some aspect of it that lives here. Yeah. And the more and more we cultivate a relationship with both of the parts, right? Yeah. It helps create like just more of a balance within this like internal ecosystem we have, right? Um. And that. both parts of you are calling for attention. The part of you that's like, you're so fucking And the yeah. part of you that's like, ooh, sometimes I'm not sure we are. And that's okay. They can both exist. They're both part of part of us. Um, but I would encourage all of us to just start cultivating a relationship with both of those parts. Yeah. Do you know what I kind of love about that too is um one of my last questions for you was to kind of address the conflict, because a lot of people experience like a pretty major frustrating disconnect between what they think or believe and what they feel. So they'll either say like, I believe everyone is worthy of love and belonging just for existing, except for me. Mm -hmm. Or they'll say, I logically agree that I am, but I don't feel that way. And I think that's one of those uh, tricky things that people feel, you know, it's crazy making. You're like, what is happening in here? But I feel like you just highlighted why that might be. Yeah. Yeah. That they both live in you and both need attention. Yeah. Yeah. And and you brought up a really a, a good question to ask both of these parts. There's so many questions you could ask, but one I would encourage everyone to ask is, um, what doesn't feel safe for you? Why doesn't it feel safe for you? Or if I was to kind of do X, Y, or Z, this, the safety part, I think is such a big part of this equation, right? We, yeah. we hold on to this idea that we are not worthy because it doesn't feel safe if we, we are worthy. Right. And then yeah. we hold on to things where we're like, oh, but if I feel I'm fully worthy, maybe that's not safe. So have a conversation with it. Like we are so brilliant and intelligent. We are yeah. when we are just in those moments of silence when we can actually connect with ourselves. So I would really encourage folks to have a conversation, talk a little bit about what feels scary, what feels safe, what mm. all of that stuff. And I a hundred percent promise you, even if it's not even like the most, you don't have to go meditate. You could literally just stop the podcast right now, yeah. do it for like 10 seconds. And I promise you, you will have a wisdom download. I, I just yeah. promise you a hundred percent. Yeah. I'm imagining like a town hall meeting with all of these aspects of <laughs> yes. ourselves, like hosting like yes. <laughs> a debate or something. Um, yeah, that's brilliant. And also points us back to ourselves, which is the whole damn point, makes us yeah. harder to control when we're in connection with ourselves. And that's the authenticity aspect that often got traded so early. So good Lord, this was interesting. Thank you so much. I have so many questions I didn't even get to, but I love where this went. I think it's such a challenging topic, such a huge and painful topic um, that overwhelms a lot of people. So I'm so grateful that you came on and, and bounced it around and shared your wisdom. This was awesome. I know oh a lot gosh. of people are going to be helped. Jesse, thank you for having me. Thank you. This was like one of my favorite podcasts. It just was so much fun <laughs> on such a heavy topic. I remember you're like, yeah. we're going to talk about worth. I was like, okay, we're doing it. But yeah. um, I, you know, I just want folks to know that this is a conversation that we're all yeah. having. Um, take it slow and steady, um, be open, be flexible. And it's a conversation we're going to have for, for a long ass time and yeah. that's okay. Um, but thank you so much for having this conversation with me, Jesse. Of course. Um, tell everybody where they can find you. If they resonated, if they want to learn more, if they want to work for, uh, work with you, where do they find you? Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at wholehearted coaching. You can find my certification at wholehearted certification. Um, I also have a podcast, as you said, wholehearted coaching, the podcast. And if you want to find out more about my certification, you can go to wholeheartedcertification.com slash programs. Right now we have our wait list open for, um, the fall 2024 cohort. Very cool. Everyone go follow 
go learn, go explore. Uh, this was so amazing. Thank you so much for being here. And everybody, thank you for listening and doing this work and going deep with us. And I will catch you next week. Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Neeland, and I want to take a moment to thank you for listening to this episode of the This Is Not About Your Body podcast. I put out new episodes every Tuesday, so be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss it. And if you really enjoyed it, please go ahead and leave me a review. Um, also, if you're looking for more information about body neutrality or you want to work with me, you can find me at my website, jessineeland.com. Or you can just purchase my book, Body Neutral, A Revolutionary Guide to Overcoming Body Image Issues, wherever you buy books, ebooks, or audiobooks. We can also connect on Instagram or TikTok. My handle is Jesse Neeland. And because I make this uh, podcast available for free and without any sponsors or ads, you can also feel free to show your support using the Patreon link in the show notes and know that your support, if you decide to uh, participate, is always very much appreciated. Lastly, thank you to my brother, Jason Neeland, for creating the music that plays at the beginning of the show. And thank you for listening, learning, and moving toward personal and collective body liberation. <laughs>